Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our study in the Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, your BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're looking at the book of Micah. It's a book often overlooked and not too often read, except for that one verse maybe you all have memorized, perhaps? Micah 6.8, right? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Right, but there's so much more to Micah here, and we're taking this week to look more closely at what makes Micah so unique and different against the written works of his contemporaries, like Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. But before I go on, I have a few announcements for us to uh, look at. Uh, the first one is that next week, 3, March 28, is our last fellowship week. It's the last fellowship time that we have for this term to be used with your uh, small groups to plan uh, a way to do something spontaneous and, um, and get to know one another a little more deeply than you would in your discussion. So uh, please plan a way to show each other grace and gratitude around maybe a meal or coffee or something. You could even do it outside your usual meeting time. Uh, some of us who are meeting in person will be meeting for dinner together at 6 o'clock as we did last week. And if you'd like to even join groups together to do a little larger uh, a group potluck meal, that's even great too. We enjoyed ours last week and we had a, a, a smorgasbord of different things to enjoy. Uh, enjoyed by a larger group, and that worked out well. Secondly, uh, we have a men's retreat at, at Mission Springs. They've uh, allowed us to invite a subgroup. So if you'd like to join the men's retreat, uh, you can find it by typing in Mission Springs Men's Retreat. That's from April 21 to 23. And if you would like to go, please let me know that you've registered. You have to register under the BSF group. So uh, just send me an email, biblestudyinsf at gmail.com, letting me know that you're going to be part of that group so that we can all room together. They would like us to be assigned in similar rooms. Third, need to get confirmation for next term. The administrator for BSF here in San Francisco need to know your intentions for the study of the Gospel of John. If you're going to be in person or online, if you're going to be with us even at all, so we can be sure to have enough groups in place to get that study going for you. Number four, we are receiving nominations for additional new group leaders. We have a lot of men who would like to join and they're all over the city and with the advent of online learning um, it's just made uh, things a little more complicated for us so we need even online teachers or moderators we need also in-person moderators as well so if you feel God is calling you to help disciple others in God's word please step up please step up respond to that call and let me know again by email at bible study in sf that's all one word insf at gmail.com the last one is about finances and giving bsf does an amazing work bsfers are all around the world we have currently over somewhere around 500,000 people studying this at any given time and it takes about $135 for the entire term, so the last year, per person for the study to be offered. So help BSF if you have a moment to support them financially. They are rolling out Bible studies to unreached areas of the world with new languages being translated as we speak. So that would go a long way to pro promoting the cause of the Great Commission that God has given us to do. So back to our study. Um, 
I just wanted to show you this slide. This is from the Gospel Project. They have, of course, as you probably are fully aware, the Gospel Project makes these uh, very elaborate uh, cartoon, well, illustrations, yeah, illustrations that show in a very homiletic way uh, the breakdown of the themes of various different books, and they make it very short. So if you'd like a good summary of what of what Micah is about, maybe to just brush up your knowledge and understanding of it, please go in on YouTube. You can find that under Micah at the Bible Project. All right, so let me just go over what Micah's breakdown looks like. The aim of Micah is to cause us to learn that God is honored when we treat others with justice and mercy. I broke it down into two parts. One is that God uh, talks about God's justice in chapters 1 to 3. And that involves understanding God's just punishment, which is chapter 1. And then God's just accusation and indictment against our sin. He makes it plain for us to understand what those sins are. The principle is the truth about our sins cannot hide from God's justice. The second division is God's mercy, chapters 4 through 7. To understand the merciful future preparation of God for us in chapter 4. The merciful explanation of the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the one who is coming to rescue us in chapter 5, and the merciful faithfulness of God in providing the Messiah and the future, and his persistence with us even when we are not able to carry out the our side of the covenant. That's chapter 6 to 7. And the principle here to take away is the truth of Christ's redemption allows us to stand before God's justice, where we could not stand on our own. The truth of Christ's redemption allows us to stand. So it is, it is believed that Micah was a younger contemporary of the prophets Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. However, he lived in the countryside. He lived in Moresheth, which was on the way to Lachish and Gath, which were great cities of commerce on the well-traveled trade routes to Egypt. Micah's name means, Who is like Yahweh?, which is significant in that Micah's ministry tries to explain what God is like to a people who are too busy enjoying the world to know what he's like, and have long since abandoned any interest in the ways of God for their lives. Micah prophesied during the reigns of the Judean kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham began his rule from 750 to 732 BC, Ahaz from 732 to 715 BC, and Hezekiah from 715 to 686 BC. So 750 all the way to 686. And so there's a, this is a, a period of great plenty and prosperity, a culture of decadence and wanton moral license that went about. And remember also that these kings were more interested in keeping up appearances and keeping up with the nations around them in their evil than about being true to their covenant, to their mission and purpose before God. And even as good as King Hezekiah was in uh, reinstituting temple worship and um, all that he did and kind of reinstilling uh, worship, proper worship of God and getting rid of idols. If you recall, instead of being a spiritual witness toward the end of his life of proper worship and adoration of God, um, even after giving a miraculous sign where he was healed, he gives uh, some visiting Chaldeans and Babylonians um, he ruins that opportunity. He gives them a tour of his treasury, showing off his wealth instead of deciding to show off proper worship and bearing proper testimony of the God of the world. So 2 Kings 20, 
verses 12 to 21 recounts this, uh, that the Babylonians actually came to hear more about this incredible sign that God had given them. And instead, he was showing them all the affluence and the wealth that he possessed. They were looking for something spiritual and he was giving them something worldly. You know, it's very much like how sometimes we approach opportunities to be a witness, a spiritual witness for the dying world around us. When someone wants to hear something of God, we're busy telling them about ourselves and showing off the things that we've, the self-made man that we've, or women that we've made of ourselves and, and, and what we did to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, and that's not what people want to hear. They want to hear about God. They don't want an ego drama uh, about our lives. They want to hear the theodrama of God's love and God's uh, drawing us with cords of love to himself. But like all the prophets, Micah prophesied against both Samaria and Judah of their broken vow to the covenant they had with God. So the covenant was for them a display of spiritual power and glory to the nations by their proper worship of God and becoming a nation of priests to the nations of the world. And instead of doing this properly, they continue to profane and adulterate their worship. Their existence was also profaned by zealously following after the world and its values. Why was the law of God so important to follow in preparation for their hearts for proper wish, uh, witness to God? Well, the law of God, I think, is often misunderstood as a collection of very, very difficult constraints. But let me just share with you um, an illustration to kind of drive home some points about how we ought to be understanding the law of God more properly. You have probably heard how some of the most accurate and expensive timepieces and clocks and watches are produced by uh, these meticulous engineers in Switzerland. Switzerland has a history and renown for having people who tinker away at small engineering marvels like these watches. And part of that, I would guess, has to do with their being snowed in for many months of the year. And then the other thing may be that they need something to keep time in hopes of looking forward to the summer looming large on their minds in all, the middle of all that snow. Well, here's a picture of one of the watches uh, that, that they might be creating. Very, very beautiful with the gears and springs and sh the miniature weights. These little pieces all have their own dimensions, sizes, weights and torques they have a physics to each one that's very unique from the other parts each one has a different physics involved they have different physical properties and each part work together with the others to make the mechanism of the watch dial work in perfect synchrony to be able to keep time when completed and wound up the watch piece like this one is a beautiful thing but to behold and it's such a marvelous thing that some people actually prefer to have an open open face that reveals the timepiece mechanism underneath just because it is such an amazing uh, work of mechanical engineering. The law of God is like this in a spiritual sense. Each part of the law is like a gear, a shaft, a spring. And when taken together, the laws have their own physics or the physical properties involved in each one. But in the spiritual way, they have spiritual properties and they all work together. See, the properties and qualities that exert, that they exert are goodness, truth, and light into the other parts of the law. And taken together, they also perform a very vital function. The law points us back to the true and living God, his heart of hearts. Seeing the way 
things work gives believers the same or even greater sense of awe and wonder that we get when we see something like the mechanical workings of this clock or the watch. Uh, it gives us a wonder at the ways in which the laws of God work together so beautifully in synchrony to tell us about the pace and rhythms of the universe in God's kingdom, the movement and dimensions of a spiritual reality that's far greater than we can imagine of this world, but also far exceeding this world, covering this world and the universe beyond, into the future beyond for all eternity. That's much, much more profound and encompassing than the limited way that we think about God's law in this embodiment of this life. We really do underestimate the law of God far, far too much in our ignorance of the spiritual things. It's the same way when we think about chemistry. It works the same way. Each element of chemistry has its own unique attributes and properties governed by the number of neutrons, protons, and electrons each element uh, naturally possesses. These properties work together so that they can bond with other elements into amazing configurations with uh, each other to form molecules that make up you and me. Well, God's laws and ways coordinate together to show us spiritual realities that govern his kingdom in the same way. They cannot be ignored only to our detriment. We flourish and we prosper and we experience heightened forms of life and worship, creativity, work and relationships and our very existence by these important uh, laws of God, the words of God. If you still have a small sense of God's law as being something that's strict and hard and a set of rules that confine us and make life difficult and you know take away the fun out of life, then you've really misunderstood the laws of God entirely. When God says his words are eternal and true and that it will be forever, there is no small insight there. It's quite profound. It is one of the most profound things to ponder. Being content with the superficial and shallow knowledge of God cannot sustain the church. That's what Micah reminds us of. He says in chapter 4, he reminds us that this was a problem with his own people. He says, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. But Micah says something extraordinary will be done by God among his remnant. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Chief, you can think of the mountains as being the, the pinnacles of places that direct and move and guide our, our objectives and our uh, ideology and our worldviews. It's going to be the chief. It's going to be raised high above the hills, it says, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. So Micah here is pointing Israelites to their lost purposes and their neglect of God's word and his covenant. When we lose sight of God's word, it is because we have placed the priorities and lusts of the flesh above the passion for the things of God. Today, the world is running after the lust of the flesh, and even the church is doing so, perhaps in order to stay culturally relevant to the world. But we must remember to recognize God's sovereignty in holy humility and to recognize his, his priorities, his heart. So Isaiah 
is ministering to um, a certain kind of audience right now. He's he's talking about Jerusalem and has easy access to the courts of the kings, of course, but he's ministering uh, in addition to the kings and princes as well as the ordinary citizens, right? He's speaking to the people in his uh, countryside, the ordinary people on the street. Micah ministered mainly outside Jerusalem among the ordinary Judaites. Micah was primarily a prophet of the people, of the middle class, and perhaps even the poor, ordinary Israelites, and a friend of the oppressed. His ministry was more rural, but the judgment that he has to give had to do with the leadership and the people who had. And so he was kind of like Amos and Isaiah. He was both cosmopolitan, but he was also very, very familiar with the needs and plight of those who are marginalized and outcast. Micah was concerned with personal and social righteousness. He was very, those are contemporary issues. He was also like Amos and Isaiah, concerned with much more larger issues covering the whole scope of history and the empire from his own day to the end times. Micah's theme is about true religion. Uh, true religion is not conformity to external r- rituals but the practice of righteousness in personal and social life that is genuine, that is real, connected to their love and appreciation for God. His thesis is that God will discipline his own with judgment for their sins, and he will also fulfill his covenant promises in the future. So as we get into the meat of the, um, or the uh, main content of the chapter, we see many, many points. Um, He talks about himself. He talks about who he is and the time that he is writing these during the time of the kings of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if you recall, uh, Micah is living during the time of these kings who experienced um, extraordinary prosperity in the land. But the prosperity of the land is starting to dwindle from the uh, apex of the time of King Hezekiah and Josiah. Not only has the loss of a moral foundation and the truth of God's word been utterly abandoned, the results of their departure from God has led to a lawlessness in the land where each man and woman was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's always a problem, right? When we're starting to do things um, based on our own standard or what we think is right in our own eyes. The people of Israel and Judah are conniving, getting rich by corrupt means, and even their so-called prophets are false. They have gotten to where they tell what they want people what people want to hear, not what should be said, not what the Lord is speaking and warning them about. So in this nation called to be God's people, uh, the priorities are about getting ahead has not become a work of integrity. Honest effort is no longer there. Learning and productivity is foiled by corrupt and evil methods. And people are strategizing and planning iniquity and evil while they're getting ready for bed and exercising those plans at daybreak. They are off defrauding and seizing the land and assets of others because it is within their power to do so. And those are the opening chapters there. See, we hear about a populist movement is starting to revolt against the rulers and leaders who couldn't stem the signs of national decay and economic ruin uh, as a vassal state to the Babylonian Empire. There may be prophets trying to convince the people of better times ahead. You know, these false prophets, uh, they are a liar and a deceiver who comes to say, as in verse 11, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. But these prophets... They're just the kind of prophets speaking to the profligate, to those who love self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking attitude of the people. 
Well, so why is he speaking these words? Their hearts have so little patience to hear the words of God, the prophecies of God. Well, due to the utter breakdown and basic civil understanding of right and wrong, God is sending them a warning again, so graciously, to help to t turn them around. God tells them, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourself. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. So he's, he's explaining these, hoping to turn people around. But are they listening? Well, this does sound familiar. It's happened many, many. It's this classic cycle again, right? Of people being told by the prophets, some of them half-heartedly coming to repentance. There being some limited kind of half-hearted uh, attempt at revival and turning back but then they fall back into their old, old way of running after the idols, running after uh, the pleasures that they've enjoyed in defiance of God's, God's word. So these are very familiar things. But when God's judgment happens, it is not a sudden catastrophe. It's something we must note. It doesn't come upon them just without warning. And suddenly, God gives them a chance to listen, to reason with them. As some might think, you know, uh, God works with a lightning bolt ready to strike us. A sudden natural disaster, a calamity. We do not see that here in the scriptures. His work is a sequence of pulling with cords of love pulling with words of warning, pulling and helping to understand with words of persuasion, with reasoning, and with um, just constantly pouring love. So where God seeks us to learn and understand, right, and perhaps cry out in repentance and turn from their, our wicked ways, He seeks to warn and convict us, teaching us how our abandonment of God and His word of instruction leads to social and individual breakdown and decline. He wants to melt us, not shatter us. He wants to, he doesn't want to condemn us. He wants to convict us, as someone had once said. <laughs> so how do wrong desires escalate into outright acts of sin like those listed uh, in these chapters? Well, the Bible describes the state of sinfulness as a starting point for all human humanity, right? We're born sinners. Sin causes us to worship things, um, worship things instead of worshiping the Creator Himself. The orientation of our worship and our affections get misdirected. Our life focus focuses on impermanent, created things instead of the Creator. And this has far-reaching consequences for life and living. Our sinful tendencies arise from the heart, of course, and including sinful communication with others. So Matthew 15, 18, 20 says that the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what makes a man unclean, Jesus says. And then James 1, 14, 15 says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It has a sequence, it's logical progression, Father, that, that sin has toward death. So our sinful tendencies arise from the heart, including sinful communication with others. Words seem so innocuous at times, so innocuous and small, but they're the first uh, expressions uh, that give expression to our hopes, wishes, and desires. And because of our sinful state, our desires and affections become perversely focused on all the wrong things, gravitating toward the distorted, the distortions, the base, the foul, the unclean things, or to assert one's own power and primacy and superiority over God and others. 
and to indulge in the worship of pleasures of the flesh as the ultimate purpose in life. There are those who deny the existence of sin, of course, but the governance of the world shows that people need to be governed by laws because of something wrong with the way that we are not able to constrain ourselves. So the laws constrain their tendency toward bad behaviors that injure and hurt others and oneself. So, you know, it, it shows up in atheistic nations uh, that uh, discount the belief in God and therefore have to set in, in place a strong set of laws that constrain basic human rights and freedoms. Why is that? Well, because they understand people are self-seeking. We are all self Everybody acknowledges that. And sometimes self-seeking to the detriment of others. Even as their pursuit of what makes them happy results in someone else's great harm and pain and at great cost to someone else, people tend to be self-seeking. Atheistic nations cannot deny biblical principle of sin. And, they, and that's why they have to clamp down and crack down. Countries like Russia, China, North Korea are not freedom-espousing and uh, uh, liberating places to be. They're some of the most law-bound nations in the world. Again, why? Well, because they know that there is no fear of God in people's hearts. There must be a fear of the government to enforce punishment on the potential disruptors and um, those who uh, seek to do harm. As some writers note, however, under atheism, humanity not only loses their rights to freedom, but they lose a sense of brightness and goodness, beauty and truth, when their freedoms are tightly controlled by human governments. Not only because powerful leaders tend to corrupt absolutely under absolute power, but the laws inhibit these laws of the governments inhibit the expression of godly attributes and capabilities that God has given to each one of us to enjoy and to flourish in this life that he's given to us as bearers of God's image. We are bearers of God's sacred image. He is the original creator, and we only imitate what he does in creating and managing and subduing the earth Due to their unbelief in this nation, of course, going back to Micah, due to their unbelief, they do not recognize the Holy One who administers justice and righteousness. To them, God doesn't exist, and their hearts and souls become dulled to moral principles and to their own conscience. They are motivated then by their kind of uh, craven desires. And sin doesn't stop at a certain level, right? It snowballs. Uh, it has no kind of a limit. It proceeds to become darker, more vile, more twisted until it has all of the person and lays them in waste. So what encouraging promise and warning did Micah proclaim? Micah wrote about the coming future kingdom of God. And then he also more importantly talked about the attributes and the description of the Messiah. He predicted his birthplace, the lineage and origin in verse chapter 5, verse 2. His future reign in chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. And he referred to him as Israel's king, chapter 2, 13, and its ruler, chapter 5, verse 2. One of the commentaries I was reading, uh, Thomas McComiskey, in his coverage of Micah in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, says, Michael's doctrine of the remnant, so we're talking about the word remnant because it comes up quite frequently in talking about the Messiah and what he's going to do. 
and this is Micah's most significant contribution to the prophetic theology of hope. The remnant is a force in the world, not simply a residue of people, as the word remnant, or in the Hebrew, it's called sherit. Sherit may seem to imply. It's not some like leftover or some marginal piece. The remnant is a significant uh, group that is preserved, and it is a force that will ultimately conquer the world, chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. The remnant represents the triumph of the Messiah, while presented in apparently militaristic terminology, because they're a force to be reckoned with, chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, 5 to 6, it's actually accomplished by other than physical force. It's a movement that cannot be contained because the Messiah is behind uh, bringing it to, to, uh, to fruition. By removing everything that robs his people of complete trust in him, uh, that's chapter 5, verses 10 through 15, the ruler from Bethlehem will effect or cause to bring into effect the deliverance of his people. The source of power for God's people in the world is their absolute trust in the Messiah and his resources, his power. Micah already tells um, his people in chapter 2 that judgment is coming and Samaria and Jerusalem will be overtaken by their enemies. But God does say that he is going to gather a remnant of Israel back together, led by one who will break open the way, it says, a true king who will pass before them and be the Lord at their head. So in question five of your question sheet, it asks, what encouraging promise and warning did Micah proclaim? Well, you might have gotten the answer to that by saying the encouraging promises of the Messiah, but the warning? Well, what is the warning here? So the word uh, remnant is pointing to this. It's inferring that not all of them will return to the land. Only the remnant would be preserved. And the warning here is to either be part of the remnant or to continue on in their sins, to be disqualified or to be dissolved as a diaspora among the nations, never to recognize their identity ever again. So here, despite all the ways that the covenant of God could have been annulled, disqualified, and canceled, God is adamant to preserve his remnant, to keep his covenant with Abraham and David, to usher a kingdom for the true king to come. People will come from all the world to go to the mountain of the Lord's temple. They're not going there for, you know, tourism or for anything else. Jerusalem has nothing to merit it other than that people are going there longing for the rock of our salvation, who resides not in places and buildings and courts and temples, but in remembrance of the covenant itself in Jesus Christ. In Micah 5, 2, 4, it tells us that you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Yeah, so here it's, it specifically mentions that it is the out of Bethlehem that the Messiah will come. And Bethlehem... Uh, of course, means house of bread or house of the Beth. Beth means house and Lahem means bread. Now, nobody knows why that city is called Bethlehem. And it probably wasn't because it was a center for baked goods or bread production. 
Its name wasn't founded on that reputation. It was founded as destined place for the birthplace of the Messiah, the Christ, because he is the living bread. And that is why Micah concludes with Micah chapter 7, 7, 9. He makes this proclamation. As for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. And so there's a double entente here. It's, it can also be spoken by the Messiah himself, but is also our very plea that through the Messiah, we ourselves are brought into the light along with him in his resurrection to see his righteousness. In question 12 of your question sheet, it asks from Micah chapter 6, 1 through 7, describe God's appeal to Israel. And that's, it includes uh, the verse about, remember, my people, what Bala, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Bahor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, uh, this is an interesting thing, too, because it talks about the perseverance of God in in uh, keeping his promise despite the disobedience, the rampant idolatry that happened. So the Balaam story starts in Numbers, the book Numbers chapter 22 to 25. And it might help you to go back and refresh your memory of that history of Israel as right as they're entering the promised land that, that God is leading them into. At Shittim, the men practiced sexual immorality with the Midianite woman and entered into idol worship with them before the idol of Baal of Peor. So Balaam was also, um, right before that happened, Balaam was a man, a prophet of God in the area before Israelites settled in the land. So they're just now entering and they're giving some alarm to the nations that are there uh, because they are so large. So Balaam, who was known for his sacred role, uh, was often uh, searched out for answers and making decisions. And the Midianites and Moabites, seeing how afraid they were of the large Israelite nation moving into the land, sought out Balaam to ask him to cast a curse on the nation because everything that he said came out to be true. So the Moabite king Balak sent a commission of high-level officials to ask Balaam to come and curse the very large Israelite nation as they entered the land. They believed Balaam's prophetic abilities as something supernatural and powerful in human terms and did not even think about the God behind what he was saying, uh, who was po more powerful, who was the actual enactor of all the things that Balaam did. So uh, they promised Balaam a great deal of worth, wealth if he would go and do as they asked. But Balaam uh, felt very hesitant about this, and he kept conferring with the Lord on what he should do. And God relented in having him go with Balak, to, but he was angry with Balaam about this, uh, to the point where the donkey started to speak at him and said, why are you preventing me? There was an angel standing in their way, right, uh, about to strike them down. But so there's interesting supernatural things happening to show that God is displeased about what is happening with the king of Balak, uh, king of Balak trying to uh, undermine uh, the Israelites taking possession of the land, the promised land. But the king of King Balak persists as well and takes Balaam to all these different places to have a better view of the Israelite encampment. But at each point, with sacrifices on seven altars, um, 
Balaam can only do what God tells him to do, which is to bless this nation. And at many different points from chapter 22, 25, Balaam ends up blessing and not cursing Israel. And that really sets off Balak and those with him. What the story shows is that God was protecting and securing Israel, even when they weren't even aware of it. And that's how he works and lives with us. He's protecting you and me in ways we don't even properly understand. And we forget that. That while there are elements and people and groups out there seeking to undo us and undermine us, to destroy our faith, God is watching over us, encamped around us, and holding fast our faith for us and, and moving us into the future, forward into His promises in ways that we don't properly understand. But what happens in this story also is that Israel fell into grave sin in chapter 25 when the men engaged in idolatry of Baal of the Peor and sexual immorality with the local women who worshipped Baal. This happened in Shittim. Another moral disaster happened on the way from Shittim to Gilgal too. If you remember, the people rebelled against the priests of God and said they wanted a king like all the nations around them. They rejected God and his reign over them. Therefore, they were commanded here to remember the history, to recall an important truth, how even as they were immoral and disobedient and worshipped idols, they were reprimanded, but God never canceled or abandoned his people. He protected and persisted in watching over them. And these are the righteous acts of Jehovah, the righteous acts of the Lord, in his persistent and patient love for them and for you and me. In that remembrance, Israel is called to see that their coming judgment is also bounded by hope and love. To see that God's condemnation and punishment of his people was not a capricious, was not a, a sudden act of wrath uh, by a displeased and wrathful God who just liked to punish, but it was a result of a God who is loving and persistent in his love, persistent in justice. See, God in justice simply could not do anything less in this situation after repeated cycles of wandering and worshiping after idols and doing evil to the detriment of the people at large. This was a watershed moment right as they were centering, entering the promised land of God. These people, the, the men, sold themselves immediately to idolatry and sexual immorality, which in the scriptures are often one and the same. Hosea 9.15 and Amos 4.4 also points to this very pitiful time when on entering into taking the land that God had covenanted to give them, they immediately fell into a form of defiance and rebellion, uh, reckless ruin against God. Hosea 9.15 uh, and Amos 4, 4 talks about these uh, the same period also pointing to their defiance, even at a time when they should be celebrating before the God of their deliverance. God has always done what was consistent with his covenant obligations with his people, never burdening them, but always protecting, defending, providing, and enabling them. Yet lovingly led them from slavery in a hostile foreign land to settlement in their own comfortable country that they forgot. I want to close this off with Micah 6, 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Even the justly and the mercy part is, to, is all under God. God calls on Israel to turn back to loving the things that he loves, which are at the core of his heart, to act justly and love mercy as he does. 
and in living in such a way to remember to walk humbly or in complete submission to the sovereign authority of God in all of our affairs, even when it doesn't make sense to us right away. Micah shows us the right posture to take in admitting our sins and coming in kind of a, always a transformational, always a posture of repentance and willingness to change before God, relying on his word to show us who we ought to be. Micah 7, 7 through 9, um, but for me it says, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemies. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. And his righteousness is seen perfectly through his death and sacrifice and atonement for us on the cross. Dying for us, he lives for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for you alone are righteous, and by your righteousness we are saved. We lift you up and praise you, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves. Even in the middle of our waywardness, our immorality, our defiance, our idolatry, persisting in these things in the classic cycle of rebellion and sin, Lord, you have not given up on us because you are who you are despite us. You are a righteous God, a just God, a faithful God who keeps your promise of the covenant. You knew that we could not keep ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for the Messiah, who is our Savior, Redeemer, King, our prophet, our friend. We thank you, Lord. We rely entirely on him and we celebrate him, Lord, in our study of your word each week. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.